This yes. is hell. Okay. Live from traditional lands stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. We have received more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as this week's winner will be announcing a little bit later on. We, he, the winner will get a This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see at thisishell.com when you click on support. We also have listener feedback, including someone who disagrees with a recent guest, much like I did, but I also get what the guest meant. Kinda, I think, maybe. We'll also have this weekend's suggested hangover cure, especially if you're joining us tomorrow night during office hours at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. And what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. And who's on This Is Hell next week, back here Monday through Thursday, live streaming at thisishell.com every day at 10 a.m. Chicago time, posted at the same place shortly after. Then every Friday, live streaming at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time, Exclusively for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell who get new content from me and a classic interview from our 23-year archive of shows that is currently unavailable online, and they get that every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for subscribing. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, live streaming host, podcast host, Chuck Mertz, producing today. Alex Jerry. Alex, are you hanging out during This Is Hell Office Hours tomorrow night, Friday at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West uh, Devon in Chicago's little India neighborhood? Uh, can you just, if your kid falls asleep, can you just leave the house for a couple hours? I mean, if they're tied to the radiator, I don't see a problem with that. They get to stay warm and everything. I knew it was a problem to buy a house with central air. Ah, see, I told you. <laughs> Join us every Friday night beginning around 6 and going until at least 9, probably 10, maybe 11. I have a lot of housework to do this weekend as family is visiting again. So that either means I'll get drunk fast and leave early in what would be my attempt at discipline or stay way too late and get way too wasted because I am not looking forward to cleaning my house this weekend. Oh, breaking news. Family is not coming in to town next weekend. That means I don't have to clean, which means I will be probably drinking far too much this Friday. That's This Is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is really a think and drink at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago, the bar downstairs from these here studios. If you are interested in volunteering, drop by and we'll show you our interview booth and control room. And if you are a community group, club, or organization that is seeking a neutral meeting space to use for your get-togethers, drop by and we'll show you the large art gallery space that is available and is the home of Second Story Studios, which is also up here on the second floor with us. Today on This Is Hell, life during climate change is extreme with environmental degradation, shoreline loss, flooding, and more weather systems with more ferocity. Uh, they're regular features of daily life, even for those who are still in denial of climate change change's existence. Uh, the Trump administration will now will not be releasing funds that are requested due to climate change for areas that are being devastated by extreme weather, but there are people here in the United States that have been dealing with the loss of their lived environment for centuries, and they might be able to show us the way toward a more sustainable future, living with nature rather than simply exploiting it until there's no nature left. In a few minutes, we'll talk to sociologist Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature and Social Action. We'll also have the moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff tells us why he finds the new year so far 
breathtaking. This week's question from hell is, what are you wearing to Davos this year? What are you wearing to the annual gathering of world leaders at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland this year? What are you wearing to Davos this year? Leave your answer on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or direct message us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email myself or Alex, chuck at thisishell.com, or alex at thisishell.com, and you still have a chance to win uh, a This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right Right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have any more listener answers to this week's question from hell again, which is what are you wearing to Davos this year? Oh, yeah, we got a bunch. Justin H. says the emperor's new clothes. <laughs> Wally R. says assless chaps. And yes, I know that by definition chaps are assless. But given the <laughs> renaming, I'll be taking on behalf of my fellow 99 percenters. Asslessness is the key. Thomas K. says lots of petroleum-based lube. <laughs> Maybe don't want to drink a coffee when someone's saying that. Uh, Keegan W. says, the dust of Switzerland. Aaron D. says, my Lizzo dress. Pete V. says, American flag bikini. Penn D., past guest, says, a koala hair shirt. Michael L. P. says, chains. And Peter K. says, I'm draping myself in the flag, so 45 will touch me inappropriately. Who said chains? As uh, Michael L.P. is <laughs> very good. And it's really good, Michael. We got a bunch more. You want me to go through them now or wait LP. until? L.P. Let's wait for the next break. Gotcha. Uh, let's see. Alex will have more of our of your responses coming up after our guest today. Stay tuned in to hear all the replies and find out if you are the lucky winner of a This Is Hell t-shirt. Again, all you have to do to leave your answer is go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you will see the entry for the question from hell, the post there. Or you can uh, tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio or email myself, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Again, this week's question from hell is... What are you wearing to Davos this year? What are you wearing to Davos this year? Live from the United States, where property has more rights than people, this is hell. It's time for listener feedback and your emails sent to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Your direct messages sent to us via Twitter or messages sent to us via Facebook. Via Twitter, Matt writes to us about our conversation with Capitalism on Edge author Albana Asmanova. She's the author of Capitalism on Edge, How Fighting Precarity Can Achieve Radical Change Without Crisis or Utopia. Matt says uh, via Twitter, Warren Buffett famously said in 2006, there's class warfare, all right, but it's my class, the rich class, that's making war and we're winning. We actually had somebody on our show back in 1998 who said there is no class war, it's just a class assault by the rich on the poor. So it's not like Warren Buffett was the first person who had that idea. Uh, Matt continues, this is as plain to see any analysis of income and wealth inequality. Yet why is it so-called radical academics who deny or downplay the centrality of class struggle to our current moment? In This Is Hell's interview with Albana Asmanova, she says we should not resurrect the old-fashioned class struggle narratives and that making an enemy of the rich precludes forming an alliance with them. I wonder if Asmanova realizes that these kinds of arguments only aid the class war waged by the rich against us. They have everything to lose by us winning on climate, 
on saying levels of redistribution, et cetera, et cetera. Simply having a bone to pick with capitalism won't lead most of them to actually relinquish their power and money. Matt, I got to say what she said kind of set me, took me aback a little bit too. But I remember when she said that, I thought of her book and how I at least got the impression that what Albano was arguing was demonization of anyone doesn't work, hating doesn't work or won't work if you want to have some sort of universal participation in a movement. So if Albano meant some kind of bipartisanism between the rich and the rest of us, and it sounded like she did. Well, you know how bipartisanism always goes. It's just a retrenchment, a restating, and a reinforcement of the status quo. But if Albana meant demonizing as a dead end and building a movement, I get that. And I really, really wish that were true, because far too often hate can become a really attractive distraction from building any kind of political movement other than one based on hate because the right seems to have a lot of success building movements based on hating whoever the flavor of the month is at the time. We've mentioned how we have openings for volunteer board operators and producers here on This Is Hell. If you are interested, send us an email, message us via Facebook or Twitter, drop by during office hours, as I was saying earlier. And uh, if you drop by, like we said, we'll show you our studio and our producer's booth. Greg seems interested in joining us and writes, Chuck, Alex, and Jonah. Greg here, my coworker and I from the nonprofit behind, I'm not sure if we should say because it's a huge nonprofit. Uh, we were at office hours last April. What help do you need for the online archive? I'm not local, but I have computer skills. If those are needed, let me know if I can help. If not, that's cool. Signed, Greg. Now, Greg, it's totally cool, and we'll be contacting you shortly if Alex hasn't done so already. Again, if anybody is interested in working on This Is Hell, email us, contact us via social industry outlets like Facebook and Twitter. Andrew, who suggested the hair salon where I got my hair cut for the holidays, for the holidays, he writes, I haven't made it to office hours in a few weeks to ask this, but I've been dying to know, how was the haircut? Andrew, I want to thank you for suggesting the hair salon that I went to. And I want to tell you, my haircut was freaking awful. But I do not blame you, Andrew, or the hair salon, which I will not name because I do not hold them responsible. I do hold the person who cut my hair horribly. I hold that person responsible. But I also must take some blame myself, most of it. With my vision, it's kind of difficult to see how a haircut looks in a mirror eight feet away. So the haircut was awful. My girly kind of saved it, kind of, and I'm still looking for a new barber. And if anyone in Chicago has a suggestion, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. And if you want to see my horrible, horrible haircut, you can join us during office hours again tomorrow, Fridays at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. That's listener feedback, and this is hell. You can send your thoughts, criticism, comments, guest and topic suggestions, or whatever you'd like to. Chuck at thisishell.com, Alex at thisishell.com, message us via Twitter or Facebook, or you can send us stuff via what people call apparently the mail. This is hell, 2251 West Devon, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. I told you so. This 
is hell. Coming up, climate change is going to change the way we live. And if we better and if we better understand native cultures, we might have a better future. More of your answers to the question from hell, as well as this week's winner, what's happening on tomorrow's podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Your hangover cure for this weekend, as well as what's happening on the show next week. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell's Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Our world is collapsing around us due to climate change, and we're going to have to do something about it. But what? Nobody's ever experienced anything like this before, so we're headed into uncharted waters when it comes to things like extreme sea level rise. Well, what if within the United States there were people who have experienced this before in their own way? Might they be able to point us to a better future? Here to help us answer those questions, sociologist Kari Marie Norgard is author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature and Social Action. Welcome to This Is Hell, Kari. Good morning. Thank you. Kari Thanks is, for having me. Thank you for being on. Kari is Associate Professor of Sociology and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon, and she's a past recipient of the Pacific Sociological Association's Distinguished Practice Award. You write to the people who live there, the Klamath Basin, which stretches from Northern California to Southern Oregon, is their center of the world. It's not hard to see why, despite its remoteness, the region has been a touchstone for landmark environmental policies, not the least of which is the current process for the removal of the Klamath River dams. Why, despite its remoteness, has this region been a touchstone for landmark environmental policy? Plenty of other remote areas have a wealth of uh, indigenous cultural knowledge and ingenuity existing alongside intense disenfranchisement, poverty, substance abuse, domestic violence. So why the Klamath Basin when it comes to being a touchstone for landmark environmental policies? Good morning. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, you know, there's probably all kinds of places from which uh, something magic uh, continues to radiate and um, places that are, uh, you know, have strong landscapes with lots of things that are intact ecologically and culturally. And um, so, yeah, I, for me, it has been, and I think for those of us uh, very far away from Chicago, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, um, this is a really important place, but certainly I'm sure there are others. Um, but this is a place where, you know, it's in California, as you read, um, two-hour drive uh, from the nearest stoplight. Many people don't think about California as having that kind of a remote area where lots of people are still getting a percentage of their food from hunting and fishing and gathering. And um, it's a place that has uh, been leading the way, as, as you mentioned, in terms of um, what hopefully will be um, happening in a, just about a year from now. Um, the the largest dam removal um, effort, at least in peacetime, that the world has had. And it's a place where, um, when it comes to climate change, there's uh, wonderful um, positive things that are emerging in terms of directions that we can move forward, especially around fire. 
Why the removal of the dams? And more importantly, why were the dams put there in the first place? Because I think one, the, the answer to one of the questions might reveal the answer to the other question. So why were the dams put, in the put there in the first place? And why have people changed their minds and believe that they need to be removed? Yeah, that's great. Well, we in the U.S., we had an era of dam building, um, you know, in the 50s and into the 60s and 70s, um, and that we see that happening um, around the world. Other places are still building large dams, um, but large dams have all kinds of ecological problems, um, social problems, human rights problems, and um, while they are a source um, in many cases of significant amounts of energy like the dams on the Columbia. Um, these dams um, are not that. Um, they, they produce a California Energy Commission has ruled it's a pretty negligible amount of energy. Um, and yet the human rights uh, and social and economic impacts are so great. And so that's where they're, they're pointing towards removal at this time. And Connected, you know, is this idea of many of the ideas that we've had about how to manage the natural world with climate change. We're seeing that, you know, that they haven't worked or that they've um, worked for very few people, but created lots of social and ecological problems for the majority of us. I think that people would be surprised to, well, I was going to say, uh, uh hear about the role that indigenous peoples play in fighting uh, deregulation and uh, exploitation of natural resources. But I think people would be surprised to hear anything about Native Americans because we get so little news about what's happening in uh, Indian country, if you will. So how big of a role do indigenous peoples play in fighting against deregulation and opening up to profiteers of the environment? Um. Well, let's see. Well, there's a variety of things that you asked there. I would say, um, you know, the folks that I've been working with, so I'm non-native. I'm faculty at University of Oregon in sociology and environmental studies. And I, um, I've i been working with the Kaduk tribe for about 15 years, um, doing a variety of natural resource policy work. And as, as you say, a lot of people don't know a lot about what's happening in Indian country, although, you know, awareness is increasing. And um, this book is part of my hope to you know, be part of the momentum there. And um, for sure, not all, of course, there's so many tribes and, and different people, like every group, um, but many tribes are see the world quite differently from the broader non-Native public. And that has to do, um, one of the things I'm talking about in the book is with another thing we don't talk a lot about, which is colonialism and the way that um, communities have often been actually fighting against the U.S. <laughs> government for a very, very long time. And in this case, uh, the dam removal, the dams were put in place uh, not to help the indigenous peoples. They do generate some power, but of the tribes um, in the area, Karuk and Yurok, large percentages of the, of the tribal territories, people have no power at all. And yet they are impacted very negatively because these dams have um, really destroyed the salmon runs and other, other riverine species as well. So indigenous people um, often have different viewpoints from the general public in part because their relationship with the state 
the United States was founded on um, principles of exterminating indigenous people. And so there's a long history of, of mistrust and um, hostility. And you write about how you were not taught much about your native uh, neighbors when you were going to school. Uh, it, to you, what explains why we are not taught much about Native Americans? We've been doing a tagline on our show of uh, live from the t uh, traditional lands stolen from the Potawatomi people. But I didn't even learn uh, what indigenous people lived in Chicago most recently prior to European settlement. I didn't learn that in school. I had to look it up. You're an educator and you have written extensively on climate change denialism. Why don't we know something as simple as whose land we're occupying? Why do we have, uh, like I was saying, you write about climate change denialism. Do we also exist within a colonialism denialism as well? Um, thank you. Yeah, I would say um, I would say yes to both. And so first, starting with why, why are we not told? Um, there's a theory that more and more people are becoming aware of the idea of settler colonialism, which is the kind of colonialism which happens when um, the colonizers come to stay and are actually living in the same place. So this um, is not so much the kind of colonialism of, of, that happened in India or uh, many African countries, but, but in the United States, in Canada, in Australia, New Zealand, many places where um, settlers migrated to. And in that form of colonialism. Um, this, Patrick Wolfe is often cited as the lead. Um, his, his essay was important on this, but uh, many, many people are writing about settler colonialism. Um, in that form of colonialism, there's a really an emphasis on elimination and erasure. And so we see an uh, erasure of information about Native peoples. And there's a story that you know, there were some people here, yes, and somehow they're not here anymore. And there's this idea of vanishing peoples because so much of um, the uh, justification for the settler ecologies and settler systems um, is, you know, relies on sort of the idea that nobody was really here. We were a nation about freedom and, um, and the fact that genocide has been hand in hand with that doesn't go along with that narrative. And the it's wonderful that you've been working on on uh, you know local histories and the Potawatomi. There's um, I myself learn a lot and just use a phrase from a wonderful Potawatomi uh, philosopher Kyle Powis White. The term settler ecology that I just used. Back in 2007, we spoke with Charles C. Mann, author of 1491, New Revelations of the American America Before Columbus. Charles debunked the myth of the empty wilderness that existed prior to European colonialization, which you were just discussing as well. In fact, considering the time, the U.S. was relatively packed with uh, people actually having, you know, European settlers were having uh, trouble finding a place to land on the eastern seashore, leading them to settle in the far more inhospitable lands of the north with seasons that are far more harsh and soil that is not great for harming or farming. Now you're arguing the continent was not what Europeans saw as a pristine, virtually uninhabited wilderness, but rather a carefully tended garden. Is there an intentional misreading and misinterpretation of the prehistory of this continent because the the people who were living here beforehand, the native, native people and their culture, were not acting as capitalists. Is it something about trying to erase a sustainable economic system that predated American capitalism? 
Great question, and I love the um, link with capitalism. I think especially, um, you know, colonialism has been an engine and intertwined with um, with capitalist expansion, and um, certainly Charles Mann's work um, has really helped expand the people's awareness um, of you know, of the sophistication and um, intricacy and extent of indigenous civilizations on this continent. It's an interesting question about how intentional it is. And I often think about things like that. Um, how intentional is this person actually <laughs> trying to be? Um, I don't know that I can answer that, but I would say that the racism of the time for sure obscured um people's awareness of what was happening. And so you can see that in reports and archaeological documents and things that the way that people, um, explorers and so forth, are describing things, they're not, they don't really get it. And so that at least was not intentional. Um, but in other cases, you know, there are some people who did seem to um, have more of an understanding of the sophistication of what they were seeing and still the um, you know, the machinery of empire, um, the need to move, uh, relocate, uh, quote, surplus populations of peoples of my ancestors out of Europe, where all kinds of um, unpleasant things were happening to them, um, overrode any, anything else. So I, I, my best guess, I guess, would be both and. Some people probably did see, and yet there's a larger structure that was at play in what was happening, too. And absolutely, it's about the development of capitalism. We are speaking with sociologist Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. And you write about how this, the way that you've been studying uh, Native peoples in the Klamath region, uh, has had an effect on the way that you view sociology. You write Mark Feige, I believe, Feige, I'm not too sure, uh, Republic of Nature. He maintains that a wholesale incorporation of the natural environment into the discipline of history is necessary, a past guest on our show that you mentioned, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz's An Indigenous People's History of the United States fundamentally transforms the organization and canon of U.S. history. Within sociology, Alden Morris's The Scholar Denied provides a detailed expose of how anti-black racism sidelined and reordered theoretical possibilities for the field of sociology, while Julian Goh opens his 2016 monograph, Post-Colonial Thought and Social Theory, with the provocative statement that social theory was born of, in, and to some extent for modern empire. How do you see that taking place with Native people? How did you see sociology and empire coalescing in the way it viewed Native people? Great question. Thank you for, um, appreciate the passages <laughs> that, you're, uh, that we get to talk about together. Sociology as a discipline, and it's a discipline, you know, that I've dedicated a bunch of my life to participating in, um, really arose at a time when um, all these new social phenomena of the, quote, modern world were happening um, at a time when people were um, living in cities, you know, larger urban populations, and at a time when, you know, many, many people were having the perception that the natural world was uh, no longer, you know, we could control it um, in a much greater extent. It wasn't going to influence uh, how society happened, how things were happening within society, political arrangements and so forth. And 
similarly, it was being developed at a time that was at the height of many of the very racist notions about indigenous peoples and, you know, this idea of modernism and that people were um, becoming, you know, through science and um, all of these things, technological developments, um, becoming more, quote, civilized. And so what we see now when we look at the discipline um, and for my native friends and colleagues who attend the ASA meetings, um, it can be a fairly hostile environment because many of the frameworks of the discipline just fail to recognize or acknowledge um, their experiences or how they see the world. In the absence of a framework of colonialism, one tends to blame Indigenous people for the various struggles that they face, whether that's um, uh, health disparities or, um, you know, drug abuse, suicide, whatever. And so what we see is that much um, sociological research is actually, um, quote, pathologizing um, that. And uh, wonderful scholars, uh, Jules Bacon, who's at Grinnell, and Kimberly Heiser have both um, done some work on this sort of content analysis of what um, what the discipline, how the discipline has characterized um, Indigenous peoples. And kind of erasing the importance of land and nature to social life, which is a really important thing when it comes to Native people. You also point out that Pikyav, I believe I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, but that's okay, is to fix or to repair something in Karak. The Karak are known as the Fix the World people, in part because of a set of ceremonies that are observed together with neighboring tribes each year to renew the world. The responsibility to fix the world is not just ceremonial. As my longtime research collaborator, former Karak cultural biologist Ron Reed tells me, fixing the world means fixing and restoring the intertwined environmental and social degradation that is profound impacts on Karak people's lives. Are indigenous uh, religious ceremonies then often part of their resource management process? And, And how much do you credit the success of their resource management system on making the process spiritual, religious in a ceremony? Yeah, thank you for uh, that passage as well. You know, I'm really indebted to the folks that I've worked with, Ron Reed in particular, and many others in the Department of Natural Resources, um, for the energy and time that they've um, invested in me. And um, I just want to acknowledge that um, I'll do my best to answer this question, but I think it's, um, you know, from my perspective, um, but as a as a non-Native academic, it's so easy to uh, misrepresent um, a question like this. But yeah, it does seem that um, the, from what I understand and what I've been told, that the the spiritual aspect and the ceremonial aspect of management is central. And so within ceremonies, uh, is my understanding that there are um, things that happen um, which set up management to occur in the right way or in a good way. For example, um, Ron Reed has described when he speaks to my classes and up here at University of Oregon just a few weeks ago, how the spring salmon ceremony would um, is coordinated. There are sites along the river where it happens, and it's coordinated between the tribes in such a way that what's called escapement can occur. So no salmon, the first salmon is caught, and then there's a 10-day period, or the first salmon is observed, and then there's a 10-day period 
before fishing can happen, during which prayers and things are occurring. And this allows for many, many more fish to get up and past and reproduce, which is, again, the idea of escapement. So that use of prayer and the way that that ceremony is structured and conducted is part of um, uh, creating sustainable harvest, essentially. Or in another case, it's very important for what's happening now. Um, there are um, ceremonial log is burned is burning log is rolled off of one important mountain, and this also allows for um, the start of the fire season, the burning season. And again, the use of management um, actions within ceremonies is, from my understanding, is guiding what is supposed to happen sort of prescriptions for how to do things in a good way. I just find that idea of an effective, and I hate to use these words, uh, faith-based response to climate change or to environmental degradation, I just find that fascinating. I'm not saying that that is the only direction to go in. I just find it fascinating that once you combine ceremony with policy or implementation, it's something that can be more sustainable. You also write, among the far-reaching implications of the discursive disappearance of indigenous peoples has been that flawed conceptions of nature and environment permeate public consciousness and underlie the organizational divisions of academic disciplines. What are the commonly held yet flawed conceptions of nature and environment that permeate public consciousness? Isn't nature out there in an environment is where we are? (laughs) Thank you for um, yet another um, one of the hitting on some of the things that are certainly I'm trying to really convey in, in this book. Again, thinking about uh, sociology or different academic disciplines, things are so divided up. And so it's um, even within within sociology, we have people that work on environment and other people that work on gender and other people that work on, um, you know, culture. And, um, and we have all of this specialization, which occurs in that could and should be okay to you know focus deep on one particular part, but what's happened in as we specialized is we've lost the sense of connections. So in the work that um, uh, Ron and I have been doing around health, the first work we did had to do with the health impacts of uh, the Klamath River dams on Karuk people. We were moving across disciplines that might be considered um, uh, epidemiology or um, mental health or psychology or, um, uh, you know, sociology for sure. And, you know, in order to talk about what was happening in the way that um, Ron Reed and other kind of people that we were working with were seeing it, we needed to integrate disciplines which had become separate and I experience as well within what what we call environmental sociology that there's too little integration with other kinds of you know theories of how um, how racism occurs, um, how how gender is being reproduced and and conceived of. These things are considered separate, and yet um, that's an I would say a relatively new idea on the face of this globe. 
And you say that you use the example of racialization in the Mid-Klamath Basin to illustrate the fundamental importance of the natural environment to the development of the categories of white and native and to the success of a series of racial projects undertaken by the state that led to the reorganization of wealth over the past century and a half. How does the natural environment develop white and native categories? What impact does nature have on that kind of categorization? Yeah, thank you. Well, I think one of the things is as, you know, the world that we live in um, as environmental degradation is to the extent that it is, these things are becoming more visible, unfortunately not in a good way, but um, more and more when I, I teach a course on environmental justice here at University of Oregon, one of the things I tell my students is more and more understanding what it means to be African-American or what it means uh, to be uh, Latinx or white is a function of how we experience the natural world. And we can look at, for example, the concentration um, of toxins in people's bodies and um, understand that that is part of, um, of racism and part of what it means to have either environmental privilege or experience environmental racism in the same way that we can say part of what it is to be black in America today is to face the higher rates of incarceration or different kinds of forms of violence. And so the environment, um, what's happening with the natural world, whether or not we have um, good water, the quality of water that we have, the quality of foods that we have, what in how our bodies become constituted as a result of those things is part of what it means to be experience the world through a racialized body as well. That is fascinating. It just comes down to the idea of that we are nature, nature is us. I find that just fascinating. You write the relationships between racism, colonialism, capitalism, patriarchy, and environmental degradation, especially as theorized within sociology, negating the relevance of nature for the social, material, cultural, spiritual, and emotional components of human existence has been central to the discursive legitimation of the new order in North America. Neglect of the natural world is a component of social action within many academic traditions as part of the ongoing system of colonialism. If neglect of the natural world is an aspect of colonialism, is climate change the fallout of colonialism? Did the number one superpower in the world, being a settler colonial nation, lead to climate change? I really appreciate your making those links. Um, certainly that's uh, what many indigenous people are talking about. And, um, and if we think about, you know, for if we think about climate change as something that's on a long continuum of um, environmental problems or a long continuum of the idea that we can overcome ecological limits, in this case, atmospheric limits, and not be impacted by them, uh, climate change is for many people, many, many people who have sort of experienced that that myth of our disconnection from the natural world, it is now an awareness that, in fact, we, um, we, we are connected to the natural world, and the natural world continues to impact our human lives. Naomi Klein writes about this in, um, I think it was two books back, the um, This Changes Everything book, about the ways that, um, that it's sort of a technological um, you know, wake-up call, the climate change is that. So if we think about that piece, climate change is sort of the uh, the latest phase of something that's been at play for a long time. 
Um, and we think also about what indigenous people are saying about their experiences of climate change. Again, my colleague um, Kyle White talks about um, that this is not the first time that indigenous peoples have experienced very violent ecological dislocation, but that colonialism itself has created uh, this disruption of existing longstanding systems. Um, and so from that perspective, climate change is just the latest phase of colonial dislocation and the latest phase perhaps of the disruption of what has been longstanding ecological systems on this continent. Is neglect and degradation of the natural world more about settler colonialism or is it more about industrialism and capitalism or are industrialism and capitalism a distraction from realizing the impact and the role that settler colonialism has played? <laughs> That's a great question. And there's a lot of people that I'm sure would have a lot of answers to that. I think for me, the most useful way to tackle this kind of question of like, which comes first or which is most important um, I'm not as interested in that, but what I definitely see is how they operate together. Um, and so, you know, thinking about um, how industrial capitalism has um, been the the engine, um, part of the machinery of how or, or the structural force through which, um, which led to the expansion to the, quote, new world, um, which once people were here, um, slavery, you know, is benefiting capitalism, um, which is as that wealth is generated, it is then used to further um, access indigenous lands to further, you know, develop the U.S. Army to a point to be able to carry out um, more uh, effective displacement of native peoples as we move west across the continent over time. Um, or similarly now, you know, the, the use of all the military force and Standing Rock, we can see um, how capitalist wealth and industrial technologies and all these things are used in the service of colonialism. And we can see how colonialism has, as an expansionist project and all of these things, um, uh, is, is necessary for the generation of capitalist wealth. So is environmentalism, well, how is environmentalism viewed differently? How is it approached differently when it is understood as not only protecting nature, but as seen as an anti-colonialist action? Is it, is it more, is, can environmentalism become revolutionary when all of a sudden it's a project that is anti-colonial? Yeah, these are really important um, questions, I think, for our world today, because often environmental movements that are um, coming out of, you know, the way that I grew up, um, urban, middle class, white um, context, fail to reflect the needs or the um, uh, issues or the perspectives or the solutions of other communities, indigenous communities, but also um, urban black communities or, um, you know, farm workers or uh, people who are find themselves uh, working in coal mines who are white in rural areas. So uh, the environmental movement um, has been incredibly important and, and has had at various times strong links with a, a diverse range. But, but in the absence of that, it can lead to um, 
basically ideas of where to go, which are not going to be effective. So one of the things, you know, that's been incredibly helpful, I believe, is the emergence of the environmental justice movement and uh, the indigenous environmental justice movement. Right now I'm um, teaching um, Dino Hilo Whitaker's wonderful new book on indigenous environmental justice, As Long As Grass Grows, um, and I forget her subtitle, um, but she's talking about what Indigenous environmental justice looks like in terms of um, helping uh, communities remember the responsibilities that they have to each other and that humans have to the ecological world and sort of resituating um, all of our actions in a network of relationships with each other and responsibilities to one another. And this is one of the things, this emphasis on our responsibilities and our relationships as opposed to, say, rights, which comes out of the more capitalist framework um, that, that I think indigenous environmentalism can really uh, offer the bigger picture. You, quote, underscore how settler colonialism is ongoing today through land management policies for justice. Colonialism is not a single event of the past. We must think beyond the notion that land theft and land dispossession are single events of the past. Instead, colonialism is an ongoing process that takes place through the alteration of land, the alteration of species composition and ecological structures, and the alteration of relationships between people and the more than human entities known as nature. Is colonialism today then... Uh, land alteration and not theft, and does that make that colonialism more invisible and less uh, able for us to recognize and realize it and do something about it? Is is that not as bad as theft? Is this land alteration not as bad as colonial theft? That's a great question. I think um, it's equally bad. It's just the phase of how things can look. So I'll give you a specific example. When, um, and I don't know that it's less visible. I mean, I think we can we can come to see it. So uh, across um, California and uh, where Kodak people are living in the northern part of the state, um, but also increasingly um, in other places, um, we have really high um, of fire. We have much, much more frequent, very hot fires. And this is a function of these uh, flawed concept of the idea of fire suppression and the lack of awareness of how fire um, is part of ecological systems and has been used by humans. Um, strategic management of fire has been used by by Native people for at least 10,000 years or look at uh, fire ecologists there, but, um, but for a very, very long time. And now colonialism, so colonialism, the second chapter of the book, I talk about how colonialism is happening and has happened through fire suppression. Kuduk people have had all kinds of ways of using fire to um, enhance food resources, to enhance acorn production, uh, to um, enhance uh, bulbs, to keep conifers, uh, reduce conifer encroachment into areas. And that's how the foods that they have been, that, that's how they get good food. And, and so now with fire suppression, 100 years of fire suppression, People talk about instead of it being a food pantry, it's a food desert. So we can have food deserts even in the middle of an ecosystem where there are maybe the right kind of tree, 
but it's not producing in the right way. It's encroached upon. Um, huckleberries need fire, and so on and so forth. So, you, I don't know whether that you know violence is maybe it's a little easier to reclaim it, but um, to say that that violence is worse or less worse, people are still not able to get the food they need from when this system has been altered in that way. Uh, Kari, I only have about 55 more questions for you, but unfortunately, we only have time for one more. We have been speaking with sociologist Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. And some of the concepts that Kari has in this book that we didn't even touch on are really fascinating, like ideas of food sovereignty sovereignty, and Native peoples having a relationship with, land, uh, with food rather than uh, just seeing it as something as a commodity to consume and produce. This is a really fascinating book, Kari. Again, the title is Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, and all of our listeners should definitely check it out because it really introduces, or at least it introduced me to a whole bunch of different concepts that I hadn't considered before. Our final question for you, Kari, as it is for all of our guests, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, a significant goal of mine is to add to the voices who have recently been indicating how the same centrality of the notion of the United States as a settler colonial state reshapes and expands theories across both sociology and the social sciences, not to mention the humanities or sciences. How much do you think that debate informs the political divide, or divides, plural, in the U.S. today? That is, the understanding, recognition, and acceptance, followed by reaction and response to the realization of the U.S. as a settler colonial state and the impact that has on everything, from how we understand our society and how we understand our history. To what extent do you think our political divide is determined by whether we view the U.S. as a settler colonial state or not? a great question, and I thank you for it. And um, I think that on the one hand, on both the right and the left, very few people are acknowledging, um, have acknowledged this. And, um, you know, people like have acknowledged indigenous, um, ongoing indigenous present, the extent of genocide, the extent to which our nation is founded on genocide. Um, and I think that um, it is unpleasant for all of us who are, it's unpleasant for everyone to think about our experience. It's been unpleasant for indigenous people to experience it, um, obviously, um, totally devastating. And if you are um, part of the, been part, if your ancestors have been part of the process of settlement, it's very unpleasant to um, come to terms with the fact that your, your wealth that we have today, the wealth that I have today is, um, been created and and it continues to be created um, in a way that was not right and that is not good. And I think that um, there are probably deeper levels at which, even though I say, you know, across the political spectrum, there's been um, this is nobody's really coming to this terms with this yet, although the process is starting. Um, Scholars like Naomi Klein talk about in her book that I referenced earlier, This Changes Everything, that the right is right. She has a chapter title of that, that on the right, um, there is um, an awareness of, I want to say, where this is going with climate change, <laughs> that in fact, all of these things are connected and that there is a really fundamental problem. And there has been an outright rejection of climate change um, for this reason, um, 
But I would, again, underscore that it's not like the left is uh, picking it up and mobilizing to the extent that we need either. Many of the solutions on the left are thoroughly embedded in the system as it is. Um, so um, I think there probably is a lot there in terms of the political divide in terms of how we relate to uh, climate change and colonialism, racism, sexism. Um, but I'm not sure that it's uh, an easy answer to the question either. Thank you. Kari, thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fascinating book, and I really enjoyed our conversation today. Sociologist Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Actions Feed Our, and Acorns Feed Our People, Colonialism, Nature, and Social Action. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you for having me. All right. Take care. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model, your completely listener-supported daily source of agita. This is Hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who support This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell in a moment, as well as the moment of truth this weekend's Hangover Cure and what's happening on the show next week. This week's question from Hell is, what are you wearing to Davos this year? What are you wearing to Davos this year? Leave your answer at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us, email it to us. Winner gets a This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. Alex, do you have any more listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? Oh, yeah. Comrade Acid via Twitter says, Necropants, of course, <laughs> and sent a link to a story called Necropants Made from Dead Human Skin on display. Wow. Uh, 17th century Icelandic sorcerers. Okay, well, there were sorcerers back then. Wore necropants. Uh, Who sent that? Uh, That was Comrade Acid via Twitter. This is all (laughs) Twitter responses. Uh, Paul S. says, oh, geez, one of Wyatt Koch's shirts. Do you know about this story? Yes. Okay, sorry. Uh, Column Derive wrote, I'll be twinning with Greta, both wearing Trump's skin. Do you want to tell people what Wyatt's skirt is about? Uh, Wyatt Coke is a of the Coke brothers fame uh, is one of the uh, most ambitious and uh, the drive of ambition and uh, talent are like inversely proportional because this dude just creates the absolute worst looking shirts for toddlers (laughs) probably worth billions Uh, Keith Fitzgerald says is that an exploding vest or an elaborate device for sneaking booze into the movies (laughs) Uh, referencing the photo that I posted uh, the photo is not an exploded vest. If anyone from Immigration and Natural Services is uh, looking into my case for my green card, that is an elaborate device for sneaking booze into the movies and not a suicide vest. Uh, Maya G. Mole said, I'm wearing a full-body vegan leather dom suit to show all those oil barons who's boss. Sandwichman A said, banker skin boots. Uh, Andy Palmore said, my nicest evening gown. I'm going to pull some D. <laughs> Got to figure out if I can have to delete that before I send that to Blumpen. Wow. Uh, uh, Industrial U420 wrote, Vintage Hugo Boss, because I don't want to stand out. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Reginald Riot wrote, Don't worry, guys. I screen... Oh, somebody posted something that he screen capped, and I can't tell what it is. Okay. So uh, I don't know if that counts as a response. And finally... Uh, Someone with a very difficult to read uh, user uh, username on Twitter wrote something with a larger blast radius. <laughs> Again, referring to that uh, image that I posted, which is not a suicide vest. Okay, a couple more on uh, Facebook. Greg uh, M says Jeffrey Epstein's cadaver, like the way the alien wore Vincent D'Onofrio in the first Men in Black movie. Sure. Braden S says, I'm sure the Davos thrift store would like to have some, uh, would should have $5,000 suits on the rack for about 500 I'd be scared to check the pockets, though. Aaron B. says, and I went to Davos and all I got was neoliberal brainwashing t-shirt. Lawrence M. says, a portable guillotine. 
What are you wearing to How dab? How do you wear a portable guillotine? What are you wearing to... Maybe it goes around your neck. I guess. Uh, maybe... Uh, uh, what are you wearing to Davos this, se- this season? Uh, Ray O says, whatever I've packed in that's clean. Uh, Bruce S says, that fashion is so last year. Again, we're rounding to the thing that is not a suicide vest that I posted. Uh, Luke H says, sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> Warren L says, a pickle barrel. Dan T says, a blue dress with an old suspicious white stain. <laughs> Nick A says, the CGI from Cats. Ugh. Eric T says, something overpriced that's boring and looks like crap. <laughs> John T says, snake virus. And finally, the email. Uh, Adam B says, skid row couture. Again, you can leave your answer at uh, the questions post at facebook.com slash this is hell radio. And we will be announcing the winner right after Jeff does his moment of truth on Patreon tomorrow. This week saw the passing of a past guest on our show, Monty Python co-founder Terry Jones. So we are sharing... Uh, let's see. We interviewed Terry Jones twice in, I believe it was November of 1998 and in March 2005. In November of night, or, or in March of 2005, we talked to Terry about his book, Terry Jones' War on the War on Terror. But back in 1998, we talked to him because he was here for the Chicago International Children's Film Festival, which my girlie was a judge at that film festival, so we were able to make uh, contact with uh, Terry. He was was promoting his controversial adaptation of Wind in the Willows that Disney was trying to stop from being distributed back in 1998. And I'm not too sure which interview it was, but in one of these two interviews, I asked Terry Jones how much Spamalot sucked. I also asked Terry at one point how he felt about being the only member of Monty Python nobody had ever heard of. So we're going to play both of the interviews on Patreon tomorrow, patreon.com slash this is hell. The only way that you're going to be able to hear our interviews with Terry Jones, as at least as of now, because we haven't got our entire archive up, so it's available to everybody, will be to subscribe at Patreon, patreon.com slash this is hell. And I think law enforcement should be made aware of a letter to the editor's content that was in the small town newspaper I received as a gift over the holidays this year. There's some pretty scary hellfire stuff going on in the newspaper, and I'll be sharing that on Patreon with you as well tomorrow. Coming up during the Moment of Truth, contributor Jeff Dorchin tells us why he finds the new year so far breathtaking. We'll also have the question from our listener. Uh, your hangover cure for the upcoming weekend, and uh, I don't know tell you what's happening on upcoming shows bringing you bong hitting journalism since 1996 this is hell my guess is you already have jeffy on the line one two you know what to do Breathless. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. This year began as a year of many deaths. Almost as if we knew how hectically fatal it would be, we took a running start. Even before the new year, we were on our way to a billion animals dying in Australia alone. Although I read that Wombats rescued a few from the vast, deadly bushfires by sharing their burrows with other animals. Wombats, I guess, are friendly to other species. They're the capybaras of the Eastern Hemisphere. Oh, I've just read that the wombat story isn't true. So much for that bright spot. 
On December 27th, still five days shy of 2020, U.S. defense contractor Nowruz Walid Hamid was killed in Iraq. President Dump rang in the new year by assassinating Iranian war demigod Qasem Soleimani in retaliation or for distraction. And in Iran, though they denied it, for three days, proceeded to, perhaps accidentally, take a passenger jet leaving from their own airport out with a missile, killing all the people on the plane. I understand why they'd be embarrassed enough to lie. They started out the day looking like victims, then, oopsie, killed 176 people. We were a little itchy on the trigger. No sooner had the grief of those families... The families lost aboard that plane, precipitated out of the initial, the initial shock. Then good-natured, tall, funny, impish, conceptual artist John Baldessari took the opportunity to die. Like Hamid, the U.S. defense contractor, John called California home. Unlike the defense contractor, Baldessari was not on a military base at the time of his death, so there was not even the flimsiest reason for either Iran Iran-backed Iraqi missiles or Donald Dump to launch drones or missiles or any ordnance at him, which is one reason he died peacefully in his home in Venice, California, without missiles. I like to think John appreciated that. Somewhere in there, songwriter and comedy man Neil Innes died. He will receive his own posthumous treatment from me another time. There was enough breathtaking news yet to come. Buck Henry kicked the bucket. He created the spy sitcom Get Smart with Mel Brooks, whom he probably met through Mel's wife Anne Bancroft on the set of The Graduate, which Buck also wrote. He worked on all kinds of great stuff. He was a comic writer and a comic actor. He starred in the comedy of manners, Taking Off, which was the first movie Czech director Milos Forman directed in the United States. Written by Forman and three other writers, including John Guare, who wrote Six Degrees of Separation, Buck plays a staid business type rattled by the social changes led by the youth culture of the 60s and early 70s. Years later, he played a similar, though older, character in another comedy of manners, Rude Awakening, starring Eric Roberts and Cheech Marin as anachronistic hippies returned from exile in a Central American jungle to New York in the Reagan and Milken era. They try to stop a war they find out about in a secret CIA file, which turns out is a proposal for a hypothetical military exercise. But when our boys expose it, Pentagon Papers style, the public loves the idea of war so much they demand the government invade San Guadarico or whatever fictional country, resulting in the exact invasion the hippies intended to prevent. There's funny stuff about Cheech being irreparably damaged by CIA experiments with LSD, and the cherries on top are Buck Henry and Second City TV's Andrea Martin as the overprivileged couple of normies, Lloyd and Linda Stuhl. That's how Buck Henry keeps introducing himself. I'm Lloyd Stuhl. And later, Cheech is stoned and laughing about it. Hey, where the stools? The drummer for Rush, Neil Peart, died. He co-wrote the song Spirit of Radio, and there's a connection with Buck Henry that's slightly flimsy. The last few lines of the song are, For the words of the prophets were written on the studio wall, concert hall, and echoes with the sounds of salesmen. Which is clearly an allusion to the Simon and Garfunkel song, Sounds of Silence. The words of the prophets are written on the subway walls, tenement halls, and whispered in the sounds of silence. Which song features in the movie? 
The Graduate, written by Buck Henry, who starred in Taking Off, Czech director Milos Forman's U.S. directorial debut. U.S. director, U.S. director. <sighs> Coincidentally, another Czech director and Forman's erstwhile collaborator, Ivan Passer, who went to the same Prague boarding school as Forman, and playwright and eventually president of Czech Republic, Václav Havel, died the same day as Buck Henry. Passer assistant directed and co-wrote a couple of Foreman's films while making his own film, Intimate Lighting, a major work of Czech New Wave cinema. Foreman and Passer left Czechoslovakia together while it was metamorphosing into the Czech Republic, and Passer would go on to direct Cutter's Way with Jeff Bridges and John Hurd, Creator, starring Peter O'Toole, and Stalin, starring Robert Duvall in the title role. I met Ivan at a few parties, and on top of being a great filmmaker, he was a sweet and gentle man. He was also a collaborator, mentor, and father figure to my friend, the Locarno International Festival Best Actor award-winning Spaniard and screenwriter, Andoni Gracia. Ivan and Andoni were working on several projects together, including a truly epic story that I hope can find its way to the screen someday. Ivan's passing was an even bigger loss for Andoni than for the rest of us. For Andoni, Ivan was like family. This final item comes from the obituary page of a paper from my and Chuck's hometown, the legendary Detroit Free Press. I can't remember when or where I first met former Michigan State Senator Jack Faxon. I first knew of him as a friend of the family of my friend and off-time artistic collaborator, the Barons of Oak Park. The last time I saw Jack in person, I do remember. It was at the home of a college friend, a different friend altogether. It was in one of the shinier suburbs of Detroit, Birmingham, I believe, when Jack careened in joyously, greeting the members of my college friend's family, remnants of makeup on his face as he just finished performing in the Michigan Opera Theater production of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado at Wayne State University. So, what's the truth about Jack Faxon? I have the inside skinny. Aside from being a traditional old-school left-leaning friend of the worker and the other downtrodden folk, and an artist, art collector, polyglot, educator, flamenco dancer, and light opera performer, the man was gleefully gay as the goose's neck is long. That's no secret. Not in the Detroit area's gay community, art community, theater community, Jewish community, and blue-haired erstwhile Liberace fan community. I'm most certainly not outing the gentleman from the 7th District. His network of friends spread out prolifically. He taught government in the Detroit public schools in addition to his other interpersonal pursuits and had the opportunity to meet a wide sampling of the southeastern Michigan population. He made a massive number of friends and kept a lot of them a long, long time. I have an eyewitness source who told me that one of his former students from his 50s and 60s teaching days, a student who had been a troubled youth in all the ways a youth can be troubled, had eventually found her way to becoming a preacher and in Jack Faxon's final days, as he lay in bed in the hospital, cheerfully telling people that his doctors had told him he was dying, I have it on good authority that this former student of his, with whom he stayed in touch all those decades, did a whole charismatic speaking in tongues, laying on of hands, bringing the spirit of Jesus to heal Jack Faxon. Now, this source of mine is from a family to whom Jack was a dear friend. However, I will also say that this member of the family has a tendency to embellish the truth, if not outright invent it. But his story hasn't changed. 
So it looks like it might be reliable, unlike the Wombat story. Now, I must admit, very little of the above actually came from the free press. In the event, Jesus and the spiritual healer didn't prolong Jack Faxon's life more than a couple of days, but the story goes a tiny way to show the diverse communities of people who will feel his loss. And it's a testament to the reach of the charisma, gregariousness, open-heartedness, giving, and caring he exchanged with the world during his life. And so... Once again, people making far more out of their time on this ball of dirt in space than I ever will have left it, as if heeding Getty Lee's admonishment, fly by night away from here, which seems intentionally written in a comfortable key for Edith Bunker to sing. I mean, this crop of souls was a real score for the Reaper, who never seems satisfied. It all makes my more personal losses resurface in my memory. I'm indebted, for example, to Danny Thompson, who died last May, for the fictional name of the fictional Central American country, San Guadarico. The people we knew in the past, and even those we never meet, are gifts that keep on giving. No joke, yes, even fictional characters, Cordelia and her father, Victoria Page of the Red Shoes, Sidney Carton on the gallows in place of another, and finally, rest in power, Mr. Peanut. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Also passing away, I think this is going to break your heart, Emily LeBeau passed away. She was the creator and the person who was the best at playing the tin can xylophone. So I think we should all have oh, some sort of moment of silence or something. I don't know. All right, Jeffy, until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Okay. Live from the Nightmare of Want, this is Hell. This week's question from Hell is, what are you wearing to Davos this year? What are you wearing to Davos this year? Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from Hell? Yeah, Nikki snuck in under the wire, and he said, Dr. Arliss Loveless from the 1999 cinematic masterpiece, Wild Wild West, or anything else <laughs> steampunk. So I did like uh, Pendy saying a koala hair shirt because what's happening in Australia. Uh, Comrade Acid saying necro pants is fantastic. Michael LP saying that he would wear chains to Davos. So Alex, I'm going to leave it up to you. Do you want to go chains or necro pants? Uh, I loved vintage Hugo Boss, but uh, if you want out of those two, let's go chains. All right, chains. Michael LP, you are the winner of a This Is Hell t-shirt. All you have to do is just send us your contact uh, information via Facebook Messenger, or you can email it to myself or Alex at chuckatthisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Yesterday, on uh, Tuesday, I guess it was, when Alex introduced the question from hell, I said that my answer to the question from hell, what are you wearing to Davos this year, was an Iron Maiden, but I'm changing my answer because I can. And when I go to Davos this year, I will be wearing a feeling of powerlessness in the face of undemocratic power, sense of shame, what has happened to our world, while cloaked in despair and hopelessness. So in other words, I'll be wearing corduroy. You have won a This Is Hell t-shirt, Michael LP. Make sure you contact us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or email us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com with your mailing address and we will send you out your t-shirt. If anybody who didn't win wants to see the t-shirt or any of our swag, go to thisishell.com and click on support. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell and Alex has this weekend's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is the breakfast blah 
Blah? Blah. Blah. The breakfast blah. According to the CNN travel article, the morning after what people around the world eat and drink to beat a hangover by jo- Joel Porter and Stacey Lasto, Dublin native and award-winning oyster chef Simon Lamont, currently at the helm of London's Seabird Restaurant, thinks fondly of one of his co- home country's favorite cures, the breakfast blah. They described the breakfast blah as... A bread conceived in the city of Waterford, but embraced in the capital in recent years. The greasy meat and carb option involves a generously buttered, soft, floury bread roll, or blah, filled with bacon, sausage, and black pudding. The authors quote Lamont again, this time saying brown sauce, traditional British condiment similar to ketchup, is the condiment of choice, never actually ketchup, and wash it down with a rock shandy, lemonade, sparkling water, and bitters, or a pint of stout. If that doesn't work, a tray of freshly shucked oysters, obviously, that makes this week's hangover cure Dublin's favorite, the breakfast blah. I'm just going to go with the oysters. I think the oysters is just fine. Alex, who's on the show next week, starting with Monday's live streaming show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time and podcast shortly after the same place. Uh, we're going to be talking with historian Vincent Brown about his new book, Tacky's Revolt, the story of an Atlantic slave war. Uh, oh, sorry, just want to get in there. One last person got in a question from Hell response. Uh, Mr. A.B. said a ball gown made of baby Yoda pelts. <laughs> How about Tuesday's show? Also at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Uh, I think that will be uh, Peter Ward talking about The Consequential Frontier, his book on the privatization and capitalization of space. I am like 99% sure we got that booked. But Wednesday and Thursday, not certain yet? Uh, Wednesday, The Labor of Lunch. Hold on, I'm pulling that up. uh... And of course, next Thursday, we'll have Jeff Dorchin doing another moment of truth. Yeah, sorry. uh, Wednesday is The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. And that is on Wednesday and still working on Thursday. We've got a couple ideas and Jeffy. Thanks to thanks this week goes to award-winning journalist Sharon Lerner, who was on our show to discuss her intercept story, The War on the War on Cancer. Thanks to sociologist Kari Marie Norgard, author of Salmon and Acorns Feed Our People, who we talked to today. Thanks to our staff, Jeff Dorchin for doing the moment of truth, Ronaldo Magaldi for writing Rotten History, Alex Jerry and Jonah Tomko Smith for producing this week's show. Talk to you tomorrow. Uh, Tomorrow on Patreon, when we will be playing a couple of interviews that we did with Terry Jones, the late, great Terry Jones, co-founder of Monty Python, uh, interviews we did with him back in 1998 and 2005. Hope to see all of you at This Is Hell office hours tomorrow night, Friday night, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago, and then back here at thisishell.com, Monday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz producing Alex Jerry. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show, and that's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.